Hello, everybody. Welcome to Guys 5 Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasberry. This is Frank Pelicone. You are listening to episode 168, and tonight we are covering the top five films of 1992. Uh, it's become tradition at the end of the year for us to cover the top five movies of 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, and 20 years ago. We're um, just over halfway through this year's list, covering 92, next week 2002, and that'll be our year-end wrap-up for the primary feed. Um, Frank, how do you feel about this list tonight? Um it's a, I mean, I love all five of these movies, mm-hmm. so it's going to be a pretty easy list to talk about. Um, it's also, we've fully discussed several of these movies, um, and then one at length, as not like a featured movie, but in a podcast, and one we've talked about a few times, but it'll be the only one where we're really discussing, like... Mm-hmm. If for the first time in full um so it's going to be interesting to talk about the stuff i think more in the context of i think their importance to uh movies overall and then the genres that they're in um and kind of what they inspired that came after them yeah. i mean i think this is a pretty pivotal year in uh the 90s cinema because you have a lot of stuff um and you know i have a pretty long list of whatever honorable mentions or shortlists whatever we usually call it um but yeah i i was enjoyable watching all these movies again um i'm interested you know to discuss them and i think that i think that oddly like there's a couple of these movies that i just can find new things with like every time i see them which i find to be pretty fascinating um especially the number one movie um i think is very complex and maybe unfairly derided like when it was released um and i think there's a lot to say yeah. like with it so yeah there there's there's a lot of different takes on all that and um yeah i think it's worth discussing those different takes um but even uh two of the movies that we have talked about before uh both of them very long time ago um back in like 2018 so it's been four years since we've talked about those movies so yeah um, so what is, um, what's on your short list that you thought about? Um, so honestly, there's some movies on here that I don't necessarily like, but I still think are important. Um, so things like Bad Lieutenant, uh, Damage, um, Howard's End, um, all movies that I think were really important at the time and, uh, were critically acclaimed, but um not necessarily ones that i'm super like into um there's stuff like bob roberts um el mariachi which we've we've talked about the i guess remake or pseudo sequel to that in uh, desperado um a few good men which i don't know how interesting that is to talk about but i think it's got two of the more like iconic performances of the early 90s in it sure and um cruz and uh nicholson um last of the mohicans um lake water for chocolate uh, malcolm x which we've talked about before uh, man bites dog um, which is one of the early mm, mockumentary like almost found footage style films mm-hmm. um, that we've never talked about and then unforgiven which we've discussed before which is another one that um we've uh 
I think that we kind of like hit all those salient points on that, but still like an important movie in terms of the performances and mm-hmm. just kind of the reinvigoration of the classic Western um, with a harder edge to it. Yeah. Like a more cynical, cynical take on a classroom classic, like Western formula. Um, but all those movies, you know, critically acclaimed and um, off discussed. And it's just a lot of stuff in that year. Um and a bunch of really like important directors, you know, still putting out some people that were important through the sixties and seventies and some people that were kind of coming into their own, like during this time and would shape um, the films like for the rest of the nineties and into the two thousands. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I definitely think the five movies that we're going to talk about tonight, um, one, a, a couple maybe could be called questionable in terms of like being the quote unquote best, um, but to me, they're super important and um, have a great impact on their respective genres. So, what's the one movie off your runners-up list that, if you replace something on your top five, that you would fit it in there? Hmm. I might put like Water for Chocolate or Man Bites Dog in place of something mm-hmm. um i just don't know what i take off sure really sure yeah i guess maybe i take the number five movie off but that's one of my favorite movies sure yeah. um of the 90s so it's it's difficult for me to like objectively yeah or i guess subjectively like pull it off of the list um yeah i think el mariachi is really worth discussing i think that's a lot more important of a movie than people give it credit for um, especially because of what Rodriguez did after with Desperado and, you know, the Spy Kids franchise and Four Rooms and um, Once Upon a Time in Mexico particularly was sort of kind of, I guess, soured like a lot of people on him as a whatever, like pulp noir director or however you want to look at him. Yeah, it was a little um, bit of a, yeah. That's when the wind came out of the sails or whatever, I guess. You know, but people people talk a lot about Clerks in terms of somebody, you know, with Kevin Smith, like, kind of financing the movie himself and getting all this, like, attention and critical acclaim and basically jump-starting his career. But I think that uh, <clears throat> Rodriguez with El Mariachi doing basically the same thing, you know, like, selling blood and whatever to earn enough money to, like, finance this movie and making <laughs> something that's pretty pretty wildly entertaining and creative and interesting and um you know he wears his influences on his sleeve in a lot of ways but i think that's a a really important movie and something that probably inspired a lot of people it's like the old quote about the velvet underground that you know 200 people owned a velvet underground record but all of them like formed a band and i think that especially in like 92 like around that time not everybody saw El Mariachi, but all the people that did, I think, were inspired, or a lot of people that did were inspired to do other things and kind of gave you the feeling that you could, in the same way of Clark's, you know, that it was possible for you to come from, like, nothing and not have a film degree or the backing of a studio and still make a movie that was important and profitable, so. Yeah. It's um, it's interesting. Always, I I don't often do this. I always look it up, but I don't ever bring it up. Maybe a couple of years ago, I did. But if you look at the Oscars for that year, it's interesting that you have five movies on this list that are really influential 
really great movies. Um, and there's one Oscar nomination out of the major categories among yeah. these movies. Um, what was it? Cry- Crying so, Game, Few Good Men, Howard's Best End. Best Picture, uh, Crying Game, Howard's End, Few Good Men, Son of a Woman, and Unforgiven. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I didn't put Son of a Woman on there because obviously you know how I feel about Son of a Woman. But Sure. You can go back to our episode back in May um, where Frank had to watch Son of a Woman again for the first time in probably, what, 30 years? Um, Not long enough. <laughs> the and director that year is um, Eastwood for Unforgiven, Jordan for Crying Game, James Ivory for Howard's End, Altman for The Player, and Martin Brest for Son of a Woman. Which, as much as I love Son of a Woman, I think it's, I think it's a really good movie. Um, I don't think it deserves the best picture nomination probably for that year or the best director nomination um the only thing i can see is which pacino won that year but i can see that but um but yeah it's just interesting to me it's like you know all these movies i don't think anybody would like necessarily like disagree that they have like a strong place in film history in some way or another um and just it just shows how out of touch a lot of times the oscars can be in terms of especially back then i think they've got i think they've gotten a bit better still not great but um a bit better but that back then it was just a a clusterfuck of you know who had a name and who had history in hollywood and all that stuff sure um all right, so let's go ahead and jump into your number five movie, which you're right, probably the most controversial one, but I think it's worthy, um, is uh, Candyman, directed by Bernard Rose. It stars Tony Todd, Virginia Matson, Xander Berkeley, and Cassie Lemons. Has a 79% from critics and a 63% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. So you want to go ahead and tell us um, why you ended up um, fitting Candyman onto the list here? Um. So obviously, like my heart is with horror for the most part, um, and I think Candyman is one of the best horror movies of the 1990s, and it's one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Um, so in the mid to late 90s, and then even into the 2000s, and honestly, even into like the modern age, um, there's been a renewed focus on the idea of like the urban legend, um, kind of the the hidden history of like a place or some thing that is sort of unspoken um, that people like the common people know about, but like other people ignore, don't pay attention to that's actually like super deadly. Um, and the idea of the, the candy man being this um, sort of spirit of vengeance that is produced out of like, racial hatred and murder um really interesting uh pulls strongly from uh the clive barker story sweets for the sweet uh which i think definitely improves upon that story in terms of making like an interesting socially complex tale um i know that when we talked about this before you brought up some of the criticism that it's almost kind of cultural appropriation maybe in some ways that mm-hmm. um but i don't think that i i think the candy man is a really interesting horror villain in the sense that he's not necessarily a villain so much as like a tragic tragic figure that's kind of just doomed to 
live this existence this like hellish existence or whatever and continuously like feed his own mythos by like killing other people or taking other people to keep you know the cabrini green um projects like fearful of him and maintain his level of power and sort of keep like the outside world out of cabrini green um it also is interesting because this is a time period where you haven't gotten to scream yet and you've sort of moved past the heyday of the 1980s horror where horror was always like a surefire thing that you know you could spend very little money and make a movie that would be profitable at the box office Mm -hmm. um and to have something that's so so well plotted and so well acted um and honestly i think pretty pretty shocking and complex the first time you see it and it's been a long time since i've seen Candyman for the first time but you know being able to see like remember when you watch it for the first time and sort of being so so shocked by i guess like the whole ending of it and you know her um sort of giving in to that you know be my victim thing with Candyman and kind of becoming in her own right um like taking his place as this whispered force of darkness that kind of seeks to punish the unworthy or you know the uncautious i mean i think that all that stuff is really interesting again i'm really like i've always been fascinated by folklore and mythology and i love movies that can manage to build that within the confines of you know an hour and 30 hour and 40 minutes um you look at something like and I think there's a lot of flaws to this movie, but you look at something like the Babadook does that. Mm-hmm. Um, it follows does that really well. Um, like the witch does a really good job with it where those movies, like they give you this pseudo history or pseudo mythos. And then they kind of like put characters like within the confines of that. And I think that's really interesting to do. And I think Candyman does that really well. You know, I mean, it takes kind of a, kind of a riff on like the bloody mary um urban legend um the hook for a hand urban legend Mm -hmm. um even stuff like maybe like the baby in the microwave with the idea of like the outsider like causing the death of a child or whatever um through inattention or whatever their own hubris like all those things are really interesting concepts and i think it's done really well here um i think virginia madsen is fantastic um in her role um i definitely one of the best roles of her life yeah i think it's it's really kind of a shame that um tony todd wasn't given more of a chance to sort of recreate the candy man in good movies after this one mm-hmm. um although i think like his brief cameo in uh the 2018 or 19 whatever year that 21. is 21 it was it was it was only oh. Yeah. Jesus. Well, the 2021 uh, Candyman uh, sequel. Um, but yeah, it's just it's it takes a real place with a real history, and it infuses like this mythology to it, and it makes it um, believable. And there's a very um, almost I can't think of the word. I think maybe reverential but in like a a dark kind of way to the idea of 
the different stories associated with Candyman and the people's like take on who Candyman is or you know what their exposure to him could be by kind of like tempting fate I think all this stuff is really um really interesting and the Madsen character is you know again she's brought down by her her own hubris in a lot of ways and her own like dark curiosity and becomes a really tragic figure to the point where you know i think you you have a lot of sympathy for her as a character um especially towards the middle and end of um of the movie uh, so and i think there's a lot of influence you see from it and it's also you know one of the few um african-american uh villains i guess or whatever like central characters in in horror um so just a a really important movie i think and something that maybe doesn't get the credit that it deserves um you know for the influence that i think it provided yeah um and some of the minor performances i don't think you can really underrate in terms of um xander berkeley just being a piece of shit um in this movie i mean he's a piece of shit in pretty much everything that he ever does he has that like stereotype type cast i guess what you guys say face pale pale skin tall forehead like rat face thing that he's got going on yeah and um i think that that goes a lot even besides the position that the mattson character is in i think it 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 helps that character and his performance helps a lot in terms of sympathizing with her um by the end just because he's such a piece of shit um but yeah no this is uh i've watched it three three times in the past couple years because i think we've talked about this twice for some reason i can't remember maybe we didn't maybe i rewatched it when we talked about Candyman and last year for that's true um but I, i know i watched it like three times and it's it's something that oddly to me uh younger generations don't just feel this way um it seems but i think it holds up fairly well um for 30 years after the fact i i i would definitely go back and like watch this before i would rewatch the 21 movie um even though i think there's some things that are uh, laudable about the 21 movie i i would prefer to watch this um honestly like i i think that like you said it builds the world and creates tension and you can listen to us talk about it in the horror films in 92 is when we talked about that but any of those criticisms about cultural appropriation i think are dealt with in the plot of this movie and i never really understood like you know any of that criticism necessarily um it feels like the appropriation that's going on in the plot is being punished in some way um in the plot of the movie so um i think it's still just as timely for that reason um and um and just in some ways in terms of uh what ends up happening in the movie even if you do sympathize um so i think it does create a complex set of emotions um in current day viewings um yeah but it's just a really good horror movie yeah sure some iconic imagery yeah some good scares Mm -hmm. um yeah really good like set design and visual imagery in it yeah, I mean, the bees, like, in the mouth is just one more iconic images of 90s horror, I think. Um, yeah. Her, I remember the first time watching this movie, her appearing behind Xander Berkeley um, at the end of that film, like, all bloody and mm-hmm. 
is just uh is super shocking and so like viscerally satisfying that it's um it's a really great ending to the movie yeah so yeah I, I i love candy man i think that if you're a fan of horror you should definitely um definitely see candy man well i think it's one of those movies too even if you're not a fan of horror like it's something that non-horror people that aren't deeply into horror can watch and enjoy for different reasons other than just the horror aspects of it um yeah oh um all right so number four on your list uh is quentin tarantino's debut reservoir dogs it stars harvey keitel tim roth michael Matson, chris penn steve buscemi lawrence tyranny um it has a 90 percent from critics 94 percent from audiences so uh you want to talk a little bit i think most of these movies you don't really have to give a synopsis right. for but so it's like you know um i i know when we, when we talked about this during the tarantino retrospective that we recorded after once upon a time in hollywood um you do have some criticism of this movie um so like uh is it just the iconic nature of it that made you put it on the list or ha- did you watch it again recently or what what's going I mean, on in I, your head i watched it i watched it for the podcast but it's mm-hmm. already after i put it on the list yeah um it's one of those things where whenever we have the chance to talk about um a, a master's like first film i think it's important to kind of discuss sort of what it influenced and what came after it um there's definitely a kind of edgelord feel to tarantino's take on like noir and crime thrillers sort of um you know i mean he's got the like the um anachronistic or whatever or not anachronistic whatever like messing with the time in terms of like showing you the the movie in like a broken chronology so you right, see yeah mm-hmm. later events before earlier events um but you definitely you can feel Tarantino's ability to capture patter and yeah. lingo um, and develop character through just bits of dialogue and ways that characters carry themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, also sort of illustrates, I think, really well his next to i would say paul thomas anderson probably the best artist in terms of capturing like popular music with image Mm -hmm. to create really iconic and memorable scenes um and stuff that you wouldn't feel should go with the scene um two things in particular that i think are like two of the more memorable scenes are um prior to you know tim roth meeting um with uh when he's brought in by um Kytel and he's gonna meet with um fuck who is it? Chris joe. Ben? yeah joe mm-hmm. um the i can't remember that artist but the i can't fight this feeling what more than a feeling or whatever mm-hmm. hooked on a feeling hooked on a feeling yeah um and then most memorable you know is the stuck in the middle with you um chopping off the ear scene with michael madsen um it's just it's 
I think the things that really kind of bring it down are number one, how much better most things that he did after that are. Um, I'm mean, Pulp Fiction is so much more complex and cool, you know, and yeah, and he slows down. You know, he learned to slow down, I think, more in Pulp Fiction as well. He, he loses some of the more uncomfortable um Tarantino never loses his fetish with kind of using inappropriate slang or racial epithets in movies, but um, I think it just feels kind of forced here in certain ways. Um, in particular, the characterization of Chris Penn and uh, Madsen and their relationship um, in the scene with them talking to Joe. Um, but, you know, it's a the first time you see it and when i saw this movie i was i don't know 15 maybe or 16 at the most i think um 92 i would have been 15 i probably saw it when i was 15 i guess um the plot the way that it unwinds the way that he brings everything together and kind of shocking you with the revelation that roth is you know undercover um and that Kaitel like believes in him so much, and he's this guy that's supposed to be this like the hard, world weary, street smart, like career gangster or whatever, and gets sucked in, um, you know, by this. And the fact that Roth almost develops like a paternal affection for um, that character. Sure. And I think that all that's portrayed really well. I think the performances are, by and large, really good. Um, it's definitely the launching point of indie careers for a bunch of these guys. So I think Chris Penn, Madsen, Roth, um, Buscemi. Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney. Um, again, Kaitel, like has two movies in this year that are iconic performances, you know, both with... Um, Abel Farrar's Bad Lieutenant, and then this, um, and sort of, I think, what made him kind of the the poster man, not really poster boy, but, like, the the face of indie film um, throughout much of the 90s, where, like, to the point where if you saw that Harvey Keitel was in a movie, you would probably watch it just for that, because you would assume that he was going to make good choices, mm -hmm. or at least the movie would be interesting, or his performance would be interesting. I didn't really fall out of affection for Harvey Keitel for several years after this. I and mean, I thought he was amazing for a long time. And mm -hmm. it's only been like later in my life that I've kind of come to not really appreciate Harvey Keitel as much, but, and again, it's like, there's a lot of Tarantino isms in here in terms of the way that he moves his camera, um, the free flowing nature, the use of slow motion, again, the use of sound um, that he would refine and hone over the course of like, you know the next decade um to become at one point i would have argued the best filmmaker in the world um and still one of the more interesting um auteurs that i feel like you you kind of have to watch a tarantino movie if it comes out uh, no matter what the end result of that is um, yeah so i i yeah I, watching it now i really enjoyed watching it again but i haven't watched it in quite a long time now like probably close close to a decade and 
so it was nice to go back and watch it because it's one of those things that feels like home a little bit um having yeah. watched it so many times when i was a teenager but yeah i mean you can see i I don't know if edgelord's what I would use, but I understand what you're saying. I, I think that there is a um, immaturity at times in this movie, definitely. And a guy who's just trying to almost force himself to be an iconoclast as yeah. opposed to actually being one. And uh, it, it shows through at times. And being a little bit more critical now that I'm older, I actually think uh, the revelation when Orange shoots White of him being the undercover cop is still really good, really powerful. And I think by cutting for so long to Orange's backstory actually slows the movie down a lot before you get to that Mexican standoff. And I think it slows it down too much, probably even though I understand he's trying to get his shit in with this character and building up this character and showing you those events again. I, and, and even though I love some of the stuff, I love the, him telling the story um, and practicing the story. Like I love all that stuff, but I think that by doing that, I don't really think it's adding honestly that much to the character. And it's really just bogging the pacing down of it. I also think that the Mr. White flashback goes on a little bit too long for what you need out of it um, to establish a close relationship with Joe and Eddie. Um, so I think those flashbacks, like I think the cart, the Kaitel, the Mr. White one is like perfect. It's like exactly the right length that you need to establish the relationship and build the character a little bit more and, and, and move on from there. So I think those flashbacks, um, which he uses to great success, later on in terms of messing around with time i mean i think the way he does it in jackie brown is maybe one of the more perfect ways you could ever do it sure. um and and even a couple you know the 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 main thing of you know the main crux of pulp fiction i think is well handled with um pumpkin honey bunny but um but yeah i think here he's he's playing around with it and it doesn't come off to great effect but man you 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 listen to that first scene and I still think 30 years later that it's like words don't like crackle like that, like dialogue, just yeah. sharp and characters delivering it with just like ease. Like I, I it, it is, it is amazing. This guy's ability, ability to craft dialogue. Um, and I, and I like the, the quick nature of it in this movie where he slows down a little bit, like, you know, depending on the movie, like later on, I love the quick quickness of it in this yeah. movie. I think it works really well. Well, cause where had you heard that before? I sure. mean, yeah. And really again, like to talk about the influence, this is like whatever the face that lost launched a thousand ships in a way that, you know, how many people were then trying to force that like whip smart dialogue into any, any scene that they could you know and without understanding what tarantino is doing there is giving you tremendous characterization over the course of a single conversation mm -hmm. without forcing you to sit through tedious backstory and then when he uses backstory it's done in a way you know to your point that's like i think super effective in the sense that 
it's showing you giving you information that you need when you need it to kind of change your perspective on what's occurring in the actual film i guess if that makes sense yeah yeah um I mean, everything you need to know to some degree about those characters, honestly, is established through the conversation about tipping. Yeah, exactly. So the sympathetic Mr. White, despite being the hard and world wary guy, he's the one that's sympathetic to that brings up like in the argument about like mother, you know, it's the one job a woman can get like he's the sympathetic one. Tim Roth kind of keeps his mouth shut. He's like more of the mysterious one, which kind of like hints at the idea that maybe, you know, early on that it's like um, pinks out for himself like completely oh, yeah. um mr white's the one that joe says like you know about the book it's like you know um you know he offers up you want me to shoot him like he's he's loyal to joe he's only loyal to joe really and he's willing to use violence right away i mean they said he establishes through all of that despite the fact that it's a fun scene almost like you know and it's like this scene of camaraderie which gets blown apart quickly afterwards like it's it establishes like the tra- the main traits of all those characters inside of a, com- a well-written compelling scene. It also is something that completely subverts your expectations afterwards mm-hmm. because there's no hint of, I mean, aside from again, like your point to want me to shoot them, but that could just be a joke. You know I mean? Mm-hmm. There's no hint to like what comes because they make it so, it's such like a normal conversation like uh yeah. and you know it, it is like crackling i guess is a really good way to put it but um yeah just really uh really really influential um i think something that i don't know how old you were when you saw it but the definitely kind of one of the sparks to my love of film um and something that you know when pulp fiction was announced and we knew it was coming out it was something that really pushed me to like feel like i had to see that movie um and that might be the first time that you know i had the anticipation of a movie coming out because it's this director and it's you know like i i have to see it like this is a must-see film so yeah i had the opposite we didn't see it until the week after we saw pulp fiction when it Pulp Fiction debut because again we didn't know Pulp Fiction we didn't know what it was we thought it was a gangster movie um and then like we became obsessed with Pulp Fiction and within a week like had rented Reservoir Dogs and watched so I was 14 when I saw it but um this was definitely like a go-to for a couple years where it's like I probably I've probably seen this movie like at least like I don't even I don't even want to like guess like it, it's a lot because it it does go pretty quick I mean what's it, like an hour and 40 or something like that um yeah. but it, it's like I said besides being critical of it now that I'm older it, it's a movie that moves pretty quickly yeah. um so it, it it always felt it didn't feel like it took as long to watch or was it's something you could just throw on compared to Pulp Fiction so I ended up watching this quite a bit um when I was a teenager so I have a I have a funny anecdote about this movie. Yeah. Um I'm not gonna dime out this person by name, but um I was friends with a person in high school um who's a year younger than me. And we had been talking about um you know, I mean I was obsessed with pulp fiction my 
I guess it was my junior year of high school, maybe the second half of my junior year. Anyway, so just obsessed with like Pulp Fiction um, and had really enjoyed uh, Reservoir Dogs. And uh, my friend came up to me one day after school and was like, oh, I saw the sequel to Reservoir Dogs. And I said, do you mean Pulp Fiction? He said, no, uh, the sequel to it. And I was like, well, there, there isn't a sequel. Um, but at that time, you know, whatever, like you didn't really have the internet. So you just had what you read in magazines or, you know, what you would find out, I guess, in movie trailers. So, uh, yeah, I still was like kind of cautious, like maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had watched Louis Mao's uh, Au Revoir Les Enfants. Mm. Um, and I guess because of Au Revoir. Right. And he was in French, too. So you would think that he would understand like what <laughs> Au Revoir means or maybe he didn't know what a reservoir was. I don't know um but was convinced that like that was the sequel oh geez um, yeah and i had to tell him like yeah, it's not even the same director buddy right and not really even a similar theme i don't know if you've ever seen au revoir uh, Leon no i it's, haven't um, i know what it is but yeah like yeah. sheltering jewish children during the yeah. holocaust basically so yeah. not uh-huh. not really similar to um to reservoir dogs but right every time i think of reservoir dogs i think of au revoir or au revoir Leon that's really funny i i don't know if i you ever told me that story i may not have because to me it just feels like shitting on somebody (laughs) right yeah um but what he was he was so confident like yeah the sequel (laughs) right jeez Uh, all right anything else you want to say about reservoir dogs no um it's it, to me it's like middling in terms of tarantino's uh filmography um i definitely don't think it's near like the bottom because there's plenty of other movies that sort of take that cake but you know it's also has dropped in my estimation as years go on um yeah as to how how close i consider it to be like one of his top movies yeah was number no. two for a while though so yeah it was number one for I don't know, six months probably <laughs> right right no i understand what you mean um all right so number three on your list another crime film uh this time directed by john woo hard-boiled it is stars chow yun fat tony leung philip chan Teresa mo and anthony chow sang wong has a 94 percent from critics and a 92 percent from audiences so you want to tell us a little just a little bit about this um if people aren't familiar with it and then um why you put it on the list uh so in my opinion the best john woo movie um hard-boiled is typical for like his his style of filmmaking where there's a john woo is very big into the idea of men who are tough and fearsome but also soft in some ways or have some element of um, humanity to him so you have the chow yun fat character who's this saxophone playing um super cop that kind of goes overboard and is always sort of like escalating violence to an unnatural like extreme in order to get justice (laughs) Mm -hmm. um tony leung plays uh, an undercover cop who's um deep cover in the um what the triad i guess is what they call it yes triad Um, yeah but has formed this almost like 
fatherly bond with this um, elderly uh, triad gang leader um, and is being wooed by the young up and coming um, like triad psychopath this guy who has no respect for tradition or whatever um chow yun fat runs afoul of him a couple of times as he's trying to break up um triad activity and he keeps getting warned off by his superior but you know he's a loose cannon kind of cop so he doesn't listen um eventually finds out that tony leung is undercover um and they form what's at first an uneasy alliance but then what ends up becoming um really kind of like a deep like almost like brotherly friendship to each other um some of the best action set pieces i think ever in crime film yeah um there's so many things that when you see them they just so naturally because it's been imitated so many times after this um and tarantino was a huge fan of um john woo um so before this movie you have uh, the better tomorrow films um better tomorrow one and two um both of which one of which is better tomorrow two is film featured um pretty heavily for a couple scenes in uh, true romance mm-hmm. um but just the whole idea of the the cinematic almost ballet driven action set pieces um where people dual wield guns constantly like everyone has two guns all the time and are always like shooting or doing these acrobatic um kung fu maneuvers while they're firing at each other um the set pieces are incredibly long um for being an action movie i mean the the ultimate set piece the um shootout in the hospital like basically the the triad coming to whatever like invade or they've they've working surreptitiously out of this hospital and that's where they're running their their guns and fat and uh, leung find that out and then there's just this huge like shootout within the hospital it's the way that people like jump over things and like shoot each other in midair or um the cinematic nature when someone gets shot of how they kind of like pirouette away from the bullet or um, it's just it's it's really beautiful filmmaking that is the most like badass feeling stuff really that especially at that time I mean there was sure. and I love stuff like Commando and Cobra and Rambo and whatever but nothing felt like watching a John Woo movie at this time and these were movies where you weren't necessarily inundated with this stuff i mean you really had to kind of find it and it was you know i saw hard-boiled for the first time on a bootleg vhs um and just blown away by it hard-boiled i see the killer first i don't know if i saw this or the killer first but it was one of those things where you're just like incredibly like engrossed in the in the story and chow yun fat and tony leung have these this charisma both like independently and together that just completely draws you into um into their world and you know makes you kind of root for both of them and mm-hmm. again just his ability to Wu's ability to film violence in a way that's so 
it's like lyrical almost yeah like, poetic and beautiful um it's 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 so impressive it's like and, you think about how so much of it builds and builds and builds into like eventually like a full stop of silence um it's like because the the gunshots and the movement like it really is like lyrical like you said ballet and it's like yeah it's kind of like a dance and so it's like the first like big gunfight that like ends with that like slide from tequila like yes. as he goes to the guy's head like with spits, toothpick in his spits mouth out the toothpick and yes and the flower like blowing up on his yes. face um yeah like and the one in the warehouse um where it ends with the first kind of like confrontation between um tequila yeah. and um alan i guess um and um you know the clicking like you know the gun that's like empty or whatever like it's except the gun has six bullets in it when he like racks back the, right yeah yeah the chamber or whatever uh-huh. so it's um yeah it's 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 so well crafted like the 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 action scenes in this and 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 you think about how the editing must have had to take place too um to like or i guess not just the editing but it's like the onset of like the uh what's it called um it's continuity the, like oh, the, yeah. the, the continuity must have been so complex with some of these like big scenes and stuff like that because you don't see i mean it's so going so fast maybe you miss stuff but it's you don't see any um errors in this like so it's like the continuity was really strong during the filming of this and um uh because i i imagine like you know these scenes must have taken quite a while some of these scenes to do and and get you know get what they needed for coverage and stuff like that it's uh really impressive and like the the story of these things feels a little bit like it's like what he's doing is he's taking stuff from the 80s that is like fairly common like this is like a buddy cop movie right like um but kind of like tarantino does in some ways and at this point like i he makes it cool um and he adds just enough like you know it might be shallow a little bit like you know in terms of the depth but it's just enough to be really iconic so it's like like the the young character making an origami every single time that he kills someone as like a sense of like kind of guilt um like in some ways like is how do i want to say it it's like it's 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 this is like symbol it's a little shallow but it's cool as hell as a way to it's something you remember <laughs> it's it's like you know maybe it slaps you in the face a little bit like um in some ways or hits you over the head with a hammer but it's cool as hell of him just like making these things and like dropping them like you know in the water and stuff like that like i think it's um it's it's, got a yeah it's got a zen element to it um yeah but so so here's something i want to talk about so number one this movie i think and the killer maybe a little more but the the two of them together launched so many films throughout the 90s in terms of style and tone and just the like hitting the eject on a clip and then seeing it fall in slow motion to the ground or right the cinematic like 
zoom and pan around the scene to like show the people in the Mexican standoff or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. I would argue that through his first four films, um, John Woo may be the best action director of all time in that within that small context, right? Mm-hmm. This is an argument that I've made for Guillermo del Toro as well, that when John Woo moves into English speaking films, because he was after hard World and the killer, he was courted super heavy by Hollywood because they wanted him to come and, kind of like take that magic that all these people were you know inspired by and this is pre-internet days so you weren't you couldn't like pull up a clip of like hard-boiled on you know youtube or whatever i mean you had to like find these movies and there was a lot of really deep like nerd affection for for woo um that translated to hollywood wanting them and then he makes you know broken arrow and face off and Mm -hmm. it's like I wonder often about these directors that are native speakers of one language that then move into English. If somehow it just doesn't translate like the way that they, their vision or their characterization, because you never get anywhere close to tequila and Allen in any of Wu's English speaking films. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, yeah. There's, and there's so many pale imitators of this. Um, even ones that aren't that bad, like Romeo is Bleeding or um, uh, the other one that Jet Li is in. And then like the run, not not the rundown, um, uh, the one with Chalion Fat and uh, Mira Sorvino. Um, the Replacement Killers or The Replacements? No, no the Replacement the, Killers, right? Yeah, The the Replacements is <laughs> fucking Keanu Reeves. Um, although that's funny. I wish that, that John Woo directed that. <laughs> the Replacement Killers, yeah. There's another one too, though, that I'm um, there's a Mark Wahlberg, the, the big hit, maybe. Mm. Um, so all these movies that kind of like we're trying to pull that cool, um, like ultra hip, ultra cinematic, like violence and just kind of failed at it because they didn't understand. And then ultimately, it seems that like Woo didn't understand, like once he got out of, um, and you know what part of it might be too is that there's very little so. Cantonese I think anyway it's it's Hong Kong cinema there's very little rules about what you can do with a stuntman or an actor especially at that time in Asian film and you know in Hong Kong in particular so maybe it's when you have to like actually care about the light the life of the person you know acting in your movie that it kind of like makes him pull back a little bit and you don't quite get the same visceral right like joy out of watching his movies um i don't know but it's just interesting to me that you know i think if you watch the killer and hard-boiled and even like better tomorrow too together it's just it's amazing like how powerful that man is at creating imagery and scene and filming action it's even small things too like there's there's a scene in Hardboiled about midway through the movie, and you kind of reference this, the end of the scene, but um, Tony Leung has to make the choice to murder his um, his father figure mentor in order to really ingratiate himself with the psychotic mob boss. Um, and he does, and then sort of loses his mind and murders all of um, his former, you know, gang mates or whatever. 
and Chow Yun Fat has staked out this place because he found out there was going to be this meeting and starts like launching smoke grenades like into <laughs> and they hit at like these different angles and it's almost I mean it's got to be planned but the way they like bounce off and like trail smoke behind them and even before that there's a scene when um Lau or whatever the the old man his 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 gang is coming in in their cars and the one-eyed um henchman of the the psychopath tosses a grenade and it bounces perfectly and rolls under a car like as the car is going over it and then blows up and it's just crazy like how the the timing and the like catching that angle perfectly and then you have to mm-hmm. blow up a car so it's got to be you know a limited amount of times that you can do this scene um just really impressive and uh, I, I i i love this movie another thing in that scene though that's such a damn good scene just the entire sequence of it but like when he shoots like his like kind of like uncle figure or whatever like the tony leung's such a damn good actor um the look that he gives when he slow-mo is walking back yeah, to exactly, johnny yep. wong where it's like he sits there and is like walking back and he smiles but it's this plastered smile yeah it makes him like, look a little bit like a psychopath like too long but it's like you know as the viewer that he's like so like losing his mind internally right. like it's it's so good like like perfect like and the, that look the characterization that comes from because as he like turns his head back you get like the grimace like the chagrin on his face mm-hmm. and then the thing that i love the most is that like 45 minutes later during the um the hospital scene which is also like an amazing mm-hmm. scene in terms of like just everything that they do i don't know, like the, the coordination and to your point the fucking like continuity that has to happen to make that stuff work but um the eye patch guy um two things i hate most in life creeps who like turn on their bosses and cops and, and like just i don't know it's just it, it's so great like that yeah and the fact that that guy with his fucking like page boy like soccer mom haircut <laughs> mm-hmm. you know you know who he reminds me of and this is um a video game reference but in double dragon um there's an enemy fuck i can't remember what they're called you don't fight them until like stage three they have that same haircut and they're shirtless mm-hmm. with like um I don't know karate pants on. Oh man, what are they called? It's Linda's ropers. Anyway. Um like they always he always reminds me of them. Like just this compact, muscular, like absolute badass. Um so yeah, but hard boiled if if you've never seen hard boiled, it's free on YouTube. Um, I think it's definitely worth watching. Um, really great performances. Just some beautiful... God, that whole tea house scene in the beginning with the birds and... Yes. There's there's even... So th- this is how influential this fucking movie is in my life. In the very opening, um, Tequila is playing the saxophone in a jazz bar. And he's got a whiskey glass that he pours like seven up in or seltzer water or something. Mm-hmm. And puts his hand over it with a napkin 
and like cracks it on the table so it like fizzes up and there's been so many times where when i'm by myself i'll take a whiskey glass <laughs> and like like put soda in it with like some some booze and like crack it like that so it gets all fizzy on me just because like it, it's crazy because you know he's trying to like make it sour so his lips pucker up to play the sax but yeah um just small things like that that are just so cool and right. effortlessly cool you know and it's yes. it's yeah. yeah yes but really really great movie super influential mm-hmm. in terms of like action films and um, in my opinion john woo's best movie um i i really love hard-boiled i would have probably told you hard-boiled was like my second or third favorite movie of all time for a few years mm. in the mid 90s so crazy um but no it's it's amazing movie i i i really i don't know how i end I, I searched because I could have swore we talked about this movie um, at some point, like for for real talked about it, and because um, I know I watched in the past few years, and I guess I just must have just watched it. Maybe it was when we talked about the killer. I just watched Hard Boiled as well, um, just for the hell of it. But um, yeah, I enjoy it every single time I watch it. It's still um, still a really fun movie. Really holds up really well, and and there's a lot of really good stuff. I mean, yeah. Um, like even dialogue wise even if it's very 80s like you know um in 92 obviously but it's like it's it's really like uh cool dialogue like the one that you always reference all the time um what give a man a god yeah, superman yeah. give him two yeah. and he's god he's god yeah. yeah fucking awesome um good stuff all right so Number two on your list is Glengarry Glenn Ross. Um, this is adapted from the stage play by David Mamet. It is directed by James Foley. It stars Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin, Kevin Spacey, Alec Baldwin, and Jonathan Price. Has a 95% from critics and a 88% from audiences. So we talked about this movie in your top five 90s movies of all time way back in like episode yeah. like 15 or 16 or something like that uh, but it's been a long time so um what um i don't remember what we talked about back then a lot of it's probably me marking out to dialogue and lines from this movie um but uh what what do you why did you put it number two why is it why is it so high um so out of all the movies on this list, this is, I wouldn't call it like the most, it, it's definitely the least action-packed um, and relies almost 100% on just dialogue and um, premise um, and just amazing performances. Um, sort of just detailing one night and morning in the lives of a bunch of real estate salesmen um who are kind of scumbags aren't the right word but they're definitely shysters in the sense that they're um, taking leads and going after people who almost like a timeshare style thing where some old person filled out a card to get a free prize and then they get a hard sell for years from this company who's trying to sell them um possibly questionable real estate deals um so there's a few older men who are kind of like waning in their careers. Um, definitely not like young anymore. Um, and are having like various degrees of like decreasing success and selling 
um, these bad leads, um, these properties that they've been trying to sell for years. Um, Al Pacino's character, Ricky Roma, who's ostensibly like roughly the same age as I would say uh, Moss, maybe uh, the Ed Harris character, but yes. um, dapper and smooth and well-groomed and dressed and confident. Um, a guy who just is a natural salesman because of his patter and the way that he talks. Um, Kevin Spacey as this office manager who it's implied is related to um, someone that's in upper management in their, you know, their agency um, or as um, Pacino implies is possibly sucking someone's dick to yes. get that job. Yeah. Um, then you have the uh, Lemon character who's uh, just kind of a sad sack. A man who's uh, really at the end of his career and is only continuing on because he has, and it never truly defined, but a, a sick daughter that's being cared for in some kind of like extended care facility is the impression yeah. I get yeah. um, that he can't afford to continue to make the payments on. Um, again, Ed Harris is this middle-aged guy who's got a bad temper and is completely um woe is me and but not in the way that jack lemon's kind of like i don't know they're it, they're all really kind of complex because all of them lemon's hangdog kind of hangdog but vicious like is he's well he can turn vicious real he's quick. he's got the temper but he also has the knowledge that i guess comes with age that sometimes you have to suck it up and like take the hits in order to get what you want yeah. Um, but still has the pride to like fight back against that. Yeah, there's a look that he gives Baldwin early on in that movie, like that, like kind of like head down, still looking yeah. up, like where it's like you can see that there's someone who is spiteful and angry, and you know, and um, somebody who could be dangerous, like in that look potentially. Uh, it's it's yeah, it's yeah definitely a dude that is still kind of trying to coast on his laurels from many years before um some of his best lines of dialogue is um uh, what about 84 85 86 there was nine months in 88 when right. i was on top with yeah um shit yeah that was the name that, of was the, rio, that was that was rio rancho wasn't it yeah rio rancho and then mountain view and like the mid right. yeah. yeah um and then alan arkin who's almost just a shell of a man like a guy <laughs> Yeah. absolutely feels like he can't succeed at anything he can't even finish sentences <laughs> and is in a daze until he realizes that somebody's trying to get over on him and then all of a sudden kind of like snaps to attention like well wait what are we talking about right <laughs> yeah. um to moss's uh the ed harris characters sort of vague um attempts to try and get everyone else to steal the leads for him um, so the premise is that there's these new leads that have come down for this property called Glengarry, Glengarry Acres, I think is what it's called. Highlands, I think. Yeah, Glengarry, that, right. Yeah. Um, this place in Florida, that these are the premium leads um, that they can probably get sales on, but they have to push um, these old leads that are kind of beat, um, that they've already like tried to push several times, and whoever can get a sale can get like the new leads. Um, so maybe the most iconic scene in the movie is Alec Baldwin is sent down from by Mitch and Murray, who are the guys that are 
again, never truly defined as to who Mitch and Murray are, just that Mitch and Murray are the guys that will send the guy in yes. to do the thing. Mitch and Murray um, pays for the leads, at least, you know, right. like they're the ones that buys the leads, but yeah. Um, and Baldwin's uh, ABC, the Always Be Closing, or um, Ada, which is attention, attention, interest, interest decision, and decision. Action. Yeah, exactly. Have you made your decision for Christ? Yeah. Um, just berating and browbeating these men and their various reactions. And again, like it's these subtle ways that Mamet writes these characters and just six incredibly brilliant performances yes and seven i guess too because jonathan price is really oh, yeah. as, well, mm-hmm. as well as a a guy that roma sucks in and then wants to take back his investment mm-hmm. um but just the way that they present so much complexity in their characters and you learn so much about them and the way they respond to things and the way they phrase things and, and you know, without ever really coming out and talking about specifically any one, no one sits there and has, you know, 10 minutes of exposition about who they are, or what they think or what they want, but you still learn all those things from, you know, just this normal, like, back and forth dialogue that, you know, you talk about how crazy it is to listen to, you know, that opening scene in um, Reservoir Dogs, mm-hmm. and it's the same thing here, you know, listening to ricky roma talked to jonathan price and a lot of times like the dude's talking nonsense like he's not even saying anything that really means anything but it's his smooth delivery and it's this almost confucian you know philosophy of of nothing matters you you did this you did this what are you thinking about that it's this thing yeah and it's how do you remember that woman? You remember her arm on your neck and right. Like sucking Jonathan Price through booze and you know, low talk into like feeling like he's this captain of industry for buying this fucking property that, you know, Ricky Roma lays out on a a whatever, like glossy yeah. brochure but, but what's so manipulative about that because the the thing you're talking about is like this idea that there's no absolute morality um but he quickly moves from that into this idea of like you know you like what you cheated on your wife you did it get over it like you like fucking little girl so be it like uh what is it he said bad people go to hell i don't think so he's leading him down a road to make a bad decision and right. in some ways, I mean, it's absolutely brilliant as a salesperson, but it's like he's just soulless in the way that he just destroys this guy and just like gets him right in the point that he wants him. And it's, um, you know, because there's that line, too, in that whole speech where he's like, you think you're you think you're queer. I'm going to tell you something. We're all a little queer. Right. Which I think is him almost potentially like because i think he's flirting with the guy to some degree like well, um he's, at times. he's hedging his bets yes yes um it's it's masterful like that entire thing it's like you could pull apart fucking 30 scenes in this that happen with like this these kind of short monologues or complex like exchanges, <laughs> and they're just master classes of both yeah. writing and acting yep um the the one that gets me anymore because like all the conversations in the night before 
they get tense at times, but there's no like real shouting or arguing or anything like that. The next day is so combative the next morning, like every conversation is just filled with like people either hollering or yelling or insulting one another. And it's real. It's hard to talk about. Maybe it's not hard, but it's like you know, it's it's more complex to talk about this movie. I think nowadays, given where Mammoth's at in his life and the opinions he holds and stuff like that, because I think this movie has, in recent years, it seems gotten unfairly maybe derided as being this kind of as him promoting this type of behavior or this like this mindset of dog eat dog and all this kind of stuff because of his um, more conservative bent later in life. But I I think that's a stupid idea. Like as if people can't change who, you know, over time, if anything, the word, we didn't have the words to describe it back then. This movie's about toxic masculinity and how harmful that is. Right. Um, And how it pushes people into doing things that they might not otherwise do. And also, not even toxic masculinity, but um, the toxicity of, like, uh, absolute capitalism in a corporate culture. Yes. You know, where the only thing that defines you as a person is how as successful a man, As a man. Were, right. How, how successful you were yesterday. Yeah. Or today. You know, like, it yeah. doesn't matter what you did yesterday. It only matters what you're doing now. Because you need to always be closing. Yeah. It's like, man and men are two of the words that are used the most throughout this movie um the other thing that's used consistently throughout this movie if you're sensitive to that is um things that you know language that lessens men by making it seem like they're gay right um or effeminate or effeminate in some way yes um or that they lack they lack the features that a man should have yes like they don't have testicles they don't have intestinal fortitude you know yeah yeah my watch costs more than your car like that kind of shit right uh the baldwin i mean most people probably have heard part of the baldwin thing even if they've never even seen this movie but um it's it's one of those like classic monologues kind of anymore um but that damn conversation the one that gets me anymore is Moss when he's leaving the office and he comes out from talking to the cop and Roma's fucking with him. And that conversation has so much good fucking just like hostility and language in it. Um it's like just the idea that it's like um what does he say you're you're and so much so much use of the word fuck in this like but you're fucked rick are you fucking nuts you're you're hot so you think you're the ruler of this place um and fucking shelly trying to like 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 interrupt him and say now wait a minute Dave like he's gonna do anything because he he's riding high because he thinks he's closed the deal so he's like wait a minute Dave and he just says shut up and Shelly's just like okay and these two just go at it um and Roma showing no respect for this guy whatsoever but the whole thing like blowing up to the point where um Moss is like you know like fuck you know 
you don't even like know fuck you you have the memory of a fly i never liked you anyway and roma taunting him with what is this your farewell speech and he says i'm going home and he says is this your farewell to the troops and he says i'm not going home i'm going to wisconsin and roma's like oh, i have a good trip <laughs> and he's in, in the in the oh my ed harris is fucking underrated i think in this movie like him turned around and just like screaming at the top of his lungs like fuck you fuck the lot of you fuck you all it is just this man that has been like just gutted out from the inside and they they all are like that to some degree roma hasn't got to that point yet but probably give him a you know a few years right but it's like everybody's just gutted in some way in this um and it's like, I keep thinking about Moss uh, more than anybody else when I watch this movie anymore and how he's pushed into committing a crime, but he's still not man enough, I guess, to commit the crime himself. Oh, yeah, he's he's because he's manipulative. He's just trying right. to he's trying to take two people that he thinks are weaker than him um, and trying to turn them into doing something that he doesn't have the courage to do himself. But then is like guilty, but then is like upset that somebody would talk to him as if he was guilty. And it's like it's one of the more complex characters, I think, actually, in the entire thing is Moss. Um, It's a man who whose ego is much higher than his skill level. Where everybody else has at least some sense of self-awareness, I think, in this like Shelley doesn't want to admit but Shelley knows who he is Roman knows who he is um I think George George knows who he is um but Moss is a guy who thinks he deserves more and 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 just isn't capable right. of it in any way but he um, still made twenty seven thousand dollars in commission sure sure yeah, I mean, in 1992, $27,000 right. is pretty respectable. But he's second place, right? He's never as good as he wants to be. Um, yeah, it's... And he's the one that gets, like, the most shit from the Baldwin character. Well, because um, he's the one that tries to, like, get big with him. Right, yeah. Um, God, so many quotables in this. But that, that whole thing is like, you know, what, good father? Fuck you, go home and play with your kids. Right. Like, Jesus Christ. Like, I, there's so many times watching, and I've seen this movie at least 20 times probably in my life, but it's like, maybe more. But it's like, every time I watch it, there's still moments where it's like I'm watching it, and I sit there to myself and go, Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, just because it's so verbally brutal, just, it doesn't stop. It just it just keeps hitting you over and over with just how emasculated these characters are by verbally beating on each other. Sure. Um and Yeah. I mean it's a brilliant movie. It's really funny because generationally it doesn't seem that like I know some older people that like can't get into this movie or don't like it, like people I work with or my mom and stuff like that. Um, so I think that's really interesting, um, that that's the case, and I don't know why that would be, necessarily. I mean, when I was, when I was in the early part of my managerial career, I guess, like, you, in in the mid to late 90s, you would deal with people like this. I mean, there really was, like, that kind of culture, um, 
but it's weird because like the further we get away from 1992 like the less realistic this is in terms of how like things actually play out sure um so it really is kind of a relic of its time i guess in a lot of ways but Mm -hmm. and i can understand how somebody you know maybe who didn't grow up with it or is finding it later like might i don't know maybe wouldn't be as might not take to it as quickly like as we appreciated um but i i don't know like i just think that the performances alone are worth like absolutely you know the time that you'll spend watching the movie um yeah yeah um last question last question we'll move on to number one because but do you think this has influenced my speech do you see that in any way like things i say when we talk privately because brandy overheard me like listening to it yeah i was watching it again the other day i've watched it twice in the past couple weeks few weeks but um she overheard it and like was saying that she's pretty sure that it like influences like my my language i think sometimes you have delivery that's similar (laughs) um because I saw this, I think Bloodstone and I saw this when we were like 14 or 15, right around the same time as Pulp Fiction, like after Pulp Fiction, but like, um, but I, I, I think, I don't, I think it's on purpose. Like, I, I think sometimes you do the like Alec I'm, Baldwin, like I'm doing shtick almost though. Like, yeah. But like, you're not even doing shtick. You're just making a joke. Like it's your delivery to illustrate like how ridiculous something being said is fuck you kind of like that gotcha okay but i don't know about like language wise yeah i i I know that there's a couple phrases that i that i that i definitely probably use out of this movie um but i think you're right i think i realized that it's that the movie does in itself and the way that the language is being used is offensive in nature. And I'm a lot of times doing it to make a point to be purposely like offensive, I think in some ways to make the point that of how ridiculous something is. Um, yeah. I, I'd have to go through the dialogue, but I know there's a couple of phrases I've probably stolen from this that I use yeah. fairly regularly. I mean, with as amazing as this movie is, it'd be kind of hard to not take something away from yeah. it. Um, but yeah, I, again, like I can see how some of the stuff would be problematic, especially the really like overt and blatant, like homosexual slurs. Um, but at the same time, again, it's like a relic of its time and you're seeing the other thing that's a little difficult about it too. And maybe like turn some people off is, um, Spacey's performance in it. And even yeah. Alec Baldwin, because he's controversial in a lot of ways, too. And it's just mm-hmm. like watching those people act, um, in particular, Kevin Spacey. Like, it's like watching Woody Allen to me. Like, you just kind of feel that creepiness in him, you know, like the way he hunches his shoulders. Mm-hmm. And you know that it's he's doing that because that's his way of, like, investing in that character. Right. Um, but it's still, you know, a little uncomfortable to watch. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. I can, I can turn, I can turn that off with him. Um, I can't watch Baldwin anymore without thinking of Jack Donaghy in this movie to some degree. Um, I mean, that's what Jack Donaghy is, right? Is sure, yeah, a comedic version, kind of. 
yeah, like you know, a, a, an absolute like abject parody of something that's already kind of a yeah. really like gross characterization of you know, again that toxic masculine yeah like corporate culture. Right, loser is a loser. Um. All right. Yeah, absolutely. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's hour and a half long. Um, brilliant. Um, yeah, brilliant. it is. A, it's it's a great movie. All right. So number one on your list. Um, if you heard the uh, intro and listened to it, it's the theme for this movie. It's the theme of Fire Walk with Me, uh, directed by David Lynch. The theme is by. Um. Angelo Badamente, um, and uh, he just died a week ago. Is that right, Frank? Oh, I didn't even know that. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Um, then we lost um another uh character actor in the Sal Strobel um a few oh, weeks yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, that plays Philip Gerard, the one-armed man. Um, the movie stars primarily though Cheryl Lee, Maura Kelly, Ray Wise, Grace Zabrinsky, Kyle McLaughlin. Um. And it has a 64% from critics and a 78% from audiences. We talked about this movie in episode six of the podcast when we talked about the top five movies of David Lynch. Um, I feel like we somehow come back to Lynch every three or four episodes somehow and like talk briefly about him um, in some way or another uh, throughout the past few years. But, uh, why is this um, number one in 1992? It's probably a very controversial choice to a lot of people for being number one. But So, if you would have asked me 10 days ago before I started watching these movies um, what my number one movie would be, uh, I probably would have told... I Honestly, I probably would have said it would be Reservoir Dogs and then um, Glengarry 2 or like some combination of those and probably would have put Firewalk with me third or fourth. Um, watching it this time, so I've this is maybe the fifth time I've seen this movie. Um, I saw it pretty early on when it came out on video, but I didn't understand it because I had not seen any of Twin Peaks, so mm. it was nonsense to me for the most part. Um, I actually kind of thought of it as like mostly like kind of softcore porn in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, then I saw it again after I had seen some of Twin Peaks, and then I watched it maybe three or four times since then. After watching like everything from Twin Peaks multiple times through, mm-hmm. I think that I I, I kind of like the juxtaposition of this and Candyman at five and one, mm-hmm. um, because I think this is one of the greatest horror movies ever made. But it's one of those things where you need to know so. I think watching it by itself, it's a super uncomfortable and unsettling movie that's got some really good, scary moments to it. But I think that having the context of knowing, especially after The Return, you know, watching the first two seasons and The Return and coming back and watching this, there's so many things that are just absolutely unsettling. And it's it's one of the most... thought-provoking and uncomfortable meditations on sexual physical and mental abuse of a child 
I think that's ever been put to film. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in terms of building the mythology of a universe, um, especially with characters that you had never seen before, um, you know, uh, Chet Desmond is a Chris Isaacs character. Um, uh, what's uh, Philip um, David Bowie's character? Uh, oh, Jeffries. Yeah, F- Philip Jeffries. Mm-hmm. Um, really an expansion of the denizens of Twin Peaks and, you know, who Laura Palmer is. And it's just, it's, it's so uncomfortable because in the context of Twin Peaks, one of the more shocking things to happen in watching the original series is to find out that Leland Palmer is the person that killed Laura Palmer. Like her father is the one that killed her and he was, you know, sexually abusing her to see it from Laura Palmer's perspective of realizing that it's her father that's doing it to her because she can't recognize it as her father because if you take it as pure um, kayfabe or whatever, because her father's possessed by this like almost like ancient like elemental spirit of like terror basically mm-hmm. in Bob. Um, and it then it's all fear. Yeah. Right. And then if you take it from like a more metaphorical thing that maybe she's so horrified by the fact that her father could treat her like that, that she can't see him as the man that's doing it because she still has to see him as her dad in order to maintain her sanity. And, you know, her death in a metaphorical way is you know, the death of her childhood or her spirit and her father's the one that killed her because he's the one that, you know, has been sexually assaulting her since she was 12 years old. Um, which I think is one of the things that's, is, that's the most amazing. And you and I talked about this, I don't know, at, at length several years ago when The Return came out in that Twin Peaks is brilliant because it always works as just pure narrative and when you take it like that you really have to peel away layers and kind of interpret and um you know make make suppositions and it's fantastic from that perspective because it makes you invest in the storytelling because you have to make it kind of your own Mm -hmm. but even then from like a metaphorical standpoint like it works really well and connects so well to the stuff at the end of, you know, because there's Kyle McLaughlin, you know, Agent Cooper, taking Laura Palmer back to the place where she had her most traumatic experience years after she's moved past that experience and her father's, you know, deceased. And he brings her back there and she's moved past it. And then all the horror comes rushing back in on her. Yeah. And lynch showing that horror in process like showing um like jacques rougeau and going to the bang bang club and like getting molested on the floor and like she's allowing herself to do it because to her it doesn't matter what people do to her but then when she sees donna having it happen to her she immediately like snaps back to being you know a conscious like morally upstanding person 
and wants to save Donna from the same fate that she's having to suffer. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I although think that, complex in the fact that she's she has a darkness enough in her that when Donna tries to pretend to be something she's not she allows it to start and and like you know and allows donna to come along because it's like oh you want to play around like okay like but then can't allow anything ultimately anything bad to happen to her whatsoever well because i think that to me i take that scene that laura's thinking donna will chicken out at some point right that donna will learn her own lesson sure because laura doesn't view herself as someone that can teach or can um impart like knowledge because she's so broken herself um and she thinks that donna will just come to the realization on her own and when she realizes because donna's been drugged mm-hmm. um you know roofied basically when she realizes that donna's not going to learn the lesson on her own is when it like brings her snapping back it's just like you know when she goes into her house and bob is behind her dresser you know, because Leland is looking for her, her secret diary to tear pages out of it. But she sees Bob and she runs outside and then comes to see Leland like skipping down, you know, mm-hmm. buttoning his, his collar and like going off to his convertible to go to whatever, you know, meeting he's going to. And that's the horror that comes rushing back in on her. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, and it introduces the mythology of the lodge and well not i mean that's introduced in twin peaks but it really like expands on uh, that mythology yeah, yeah. and the fact that like these these denizens exist in a place so like for instance um you talked about uh the philip gerard character that actor um al whatever passing trouble, away trouble mm-hmm. yeah um pulling up next to laura and leland when they're in a car together and talking about the formica table but saying it to leland because leland is bob right and just i I don't know there's just the idea that there's this awful reality that sits underneath like the normal reality but is it this true metaphysical alternate universe thing or is it just a metaphor for repressed memory and you know the horror of like having someone that you trust and love like do terrible things to you and you know because if you read i don't know i'm sure you've you've read the diary of laura palmer or whatever yeah um the idea that leland was also molested as a child Mm -hmm. and that's where the idea of bob coming into him comes from and it plays on so many different levels because number one, just from a narrative standpoint where you're taking all these things as literal, he was possessed and that's what, you know, that experience is what caused him to, you know, kind of become evil. Mm-hmm. But on a, you know, like the subtext of that is when bad things happen to you, you know, if you don't get help and you don't find a way to like move on from it, you can tend to pass those bad things along later in your life. You know, like you learn that it's okay to do those things and then you come to do them too. So, and not to ever insinuate that everyone that has, you know, uh, 
experience where they've been like sexually molested or assaulted then turns to do those oh, of course not else. but but it but it it's it happens right. <laughs> i mean and in know. and in this like that's you know yeah again metaphorically what's causing leland to do these things to his daughter sure so. and all and, and and wants to i mean again like it's probably i don't even know how to describe it but i mean it's what bob is trying to get out of lore is to pass on to laura like you know i mean that's that's what some of the story actively is is he wants to taste through her mouth he wants to possess her um and it's funny because when you said that like pairing this and number five i mean that movie is ultimately about like the the protagonist or whatever taking up the mantle of 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 the villain where in this movie it's about rejection ultimately um of taking up that mantle right well laura is sacrificing herself to basically end as a way of like you know ending cycle kind of, yeah right um it's it's funny because it's like there's a couple things i want to talk about about all this and it's like i let me just quickly walk through so like i pulled dave kerr's like you know um review of this because it is emblematic of some of the criticism of the time um kerr says that um he's talking about gordon cole the character but is also referencing david lynch as a director but he says um he's talking about the lil character the um the the woman with the with the red dress and the blue rose on her at the very beginning and he says cole explains this contains a number of psychic clues to the crime agent desmond must pay very careful attention because no gesture is without meaning no detail without significance this way of setting up the story as a puzzle as a riddle to be solved flies in the face of the awful relentless clarity of the television narration much as as twin peaks the series briefly and intriguedly did um too soon though it becomes clear that cole slash lynch was kidding the details of this twin peaks are slight and repetitious and their meanings are num numbingly obvious behind small town america's facade of sweetness and light there exists darkness and evil news that is a day late and about seven dollars and fifty cents short ultimately lynch seems only interested in reproducing the trademarks of the series and reviving the regular characters including mclaughlin's agent cooper and an outrageously arbitrary appearance while supposed applying a r-rated level of mild titillation um so here's where here's one of the elements of criticism that pops up about this movie that i think is just fucking foolish and somebody that doesn't obviously quite understand i think what lynch is doing so i want to see if you agree with me here it's like lynch is put in the position where the fans want the mystery to continue they want to be able to pull apart all the little pieces that Kerr's referencing here, these things that nothing's without a meaning, that like every detail matters, and that the little character in the beginning of this, in some ways, I think is making fun of the audience a little bit. Like, in the sense of like, oh, this is what you want? Like, okay, like, yeah, like here, like we'll give you... He like that's what the framing of the story is. That's what the lodge is. That's what the Desmond stuff is. That's what the Philip Jeffries thing is. Here's here's Cooper again. Here you go. And it's framed in all of that, and it does its job of building more mystery and all that kind of stuff. It's not like he doesn't take that seriously. I think, but this story ultimately hasn't isn't about Twin Peaks so much as this is Laura's story, right? And I think it's a it's not it's kind of a joke but it's kind of not of like oh i know everybody wants this and i'm going to give it to them in the first 30 minutes 
and a little bit like throughout here and there but ultimately remember that like dead girl that this whole story was about like you know the the one that was found like you know murdered um i'm actually going to in the middle of this for 90 minutes show you her rape and murder and show you what the last seven days of her life was like and i'm going to force you to remember this person um out of this i think he does something similar in the return when you think about it where it's like you know Here's a girl who's been objectified in some way her entire life through all the men in her life, um, you know, even James, even Bobby, the town themselves. Like, you know, the, the the last thing that the only what's the image that you have burned in your mind, everybody that's ever watched it, of Laura Palmer. It's the picture. Right. <laughs> You know, even after death, she's objectified in some way. And everybody, like, wants a different piece of Laura. Like, everybody wants either, like, the, the homecoming queen, whether it's because they want the sweet girl, like, or they want to fuck the homecoming queen. It's like everybody wants her in some kind of different way. And she's become this object, even within the series. And I think Lynch, even in The Return, never forgets Laura. He never forgets that there's a dead girl behind all this. Cooper is trying to consistently save her, but there is no saving her. Like, he's treating her, he's objectifying her to some degree, even if with the best of intentions himself, to the point where it's like he goes through a different dimension to pull the girl that he thinks is Laura Palmer (laughs) through time, almost, you know, and then takes her back to the place of her abuse. Um, It's like, it's like I think Lynch is trying to get people to recognize the horror of what happens to very real victims in this and not just see it as a prop for a mystery. Um, even though it'll supply a little bit of the mystery and a little bit of like the, the metaphysical slash you know supernatural stuff like you know i think he's really forcing everybody to deal with this and i think to sit there and say like oh this is just a rehash of twin peaks is a real dumb fucking thing to say let me um i guess let me speak to mr kerr the little thing in the beginning i've always taken as it's it's gordon's weird way of letting his agents figure things out for themselves mm-hmm. by thinking that they have some insider knowledge or you know like it's fake zen or fake um i don't know how to say it but like you know chet desmond is saying all these things about this woman like dancing and moving and stuff and None of it can be proven to be true. He's just assuming things, or I, I don't know. Like it's it, it, it's basically just like weird metaphysical confirmation bias, <laughs> where like he already thinks he knows what he's going into, and mm-hmm. now he's seeing this stuff and he's pulling right. connections together, which is right. exactly what the viewers of Twin Peaks were doing: mm-hmm. is making assumptions based on things that they saw that were confirming what they wanted the story to be. Yes, which is the joke of the return mm-hmm. is that it puts you in a position to kind of do that and then continuously like yanks it away from you by having nothing happen. 
Yes. And ultimately doesn't give you any true resolution to the things that, you know, as like nerdy fanboys, we all want a resolution too. And gives and gives you like a re, kind of ridiculous superhero ending to the actual kind of series in some ways. Like, I mean, to the to the ridiculous point that the guy's wearing a green glove to to beat down an orb filled Bob. <laughs> right. I mean, it's silly. It's silly in a lot of ways. Um, so. The other thing I would say, too, and to kind of, I don't know, contradict something that Dave Kerr says, if you find titillation in the nudity and sex in this movie, Mm -hmm. you should question why you're titillated by it. Yes. Because there's nothing like sexy or erotic about the sex in this movie. It's it's disgusting and uncomfortable and kind of sad and like the whole reason you show it is the show that lore uses it to control people a lot of times and that other yeah and that other people use it to like try and dominate her and it's her way of sure having some power and agency over herself because like she's manipulating she's using something that she feels is going to happen to her anyway and mm-hmm. then using that to manipulate it to her own advantage and yes. get what she needs, yeah. which is drugs, basically. Yeah, um, but you're right. It, it, it gives her a sense of agency. Yeah, to to numb whatever she's feeling. Um, but there's nothing. I mean, it's number one. It's completely over exaggerated and ridiculous like every sex scene there's nothing really sexual happening it's just weird it's almost like this is a really like deep two guys five movies cut here but it's like when we talked about the phantasm series and we talk about um reggie uh kind of being like this guy that mike looks up to and has these ideas of like reggie having sex yeah but doesn't understand sex, so he's always picturing it kind of wrong. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing here. Like Lynch isn't showing you eroticism. Lynch is showing you child abuse in yes. a way that's meant to make you uncomfortable. Yes, and I mean a hundred percent. Like if Dave Kerr thinks that that's titillating, I don't I mean, know, the, man. Yeah, the only other sex scene that shows up in Twin Peaks is the Diane um, Cooper scene, and think about how uncomfortable that fucking yeah. thing is. Like, you know, I mean, um, there's nothing comfortable about sex in this universe, um, ever. Um, so another thing I do, and I can't remember where we talked about this three or four years ago, but um, I remember this essay that I read, like a like a feminist, and this is a common feminist take on Twin Peaks, like the original series, and and subsequently, is that um, Lynch, basically that Lynch doesn't have like the the balls to do what really needed to be done, which is that it's giving Leland as a character and men to some degree an out by having this evil that is inside a man that is like controlling their actions um and it's it's another common criticism of lynch because um there are people like 
that see some objectifying, commodifying of women in general in Lynch's works. Um, <clears throat> despite the fact that he usually has a lot of um, female leads and stuff like that in movies. But yeah, that, that's another common one. And it's like, in this movie, Leland's making some of these choices, correct? Yeah. I like, think he, so. like, he's the one having an affair with Teresa Banks, right? And looking for someone who looks like his daughter? That's not Bob. That's that's Leland. Well, Leland's the one that's going to one-eyed jacks to seek the comfort of prostitutes and definitely looking for underage prostitutes. I mean, because so it, yes. they... they I think there's some excusing of Leland because there's one scene where Leland sees Laura and Donna on the couch and flashes to Laura and Teresa wearing lingerie Mm -hmm. kind of like tentatively like playing with each other on this bed at one-eyed Jack's and it causes them to become really uncomfortable and freak out but I take that as meaning that Leland is in some ways repressing his own desires. Yes. And what he's he's done to his daughter and feels the need to like extricate himself from that situation because he's feeling it again towards Donna mm-hmm. and Laura. Yeah. Um I don't yeah. know. Because he when he sees Teresa Banks, like in the in the he says, You look just like my daughter. I mean, like that. That's Leland talking. Like, yeah. I think I think Firewalk with Me actually does exactly th- tries to do more exactly what these critics are are were talking about in the original series, where it's like I might give them. Here's what I would say: in a, in in like a perfect world, you don't have to have the supernatural stuff there to tell this story necessarily. Like, I get it, I I do, but it's like. This is this is 1992, you know. The original series is in 89-90. Like, who the hell on network television could get away with just having a father without some kind of supernatural evil possessing him, raping right. and murdering his daughter? You you could never tell this story. Number one, you couldn't tell this story because it's just too grotesque of a story to tell from an entertainment standpoint in the way that lynch is trying to tell it so it's just not not something that could be made in general but it's a story that kind of needs to be told because i mean it's you know it's it's things that happen and it's i think a very mature look at i don't know like an awful thing that happens to people um but you have to hide it behind a veneer of something else because you can't just tell the story outright. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's a far too common story and far too common. Isn't even stressing it enough um, of the terrible things that happen to women when they're young. Like I'll, I'll, I'll say this. It's much more egregious and grotesque to watch the video of, Janie got a gun than it is to watch Twin Peaks and it's the same story you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. David Lynch is doing it in a way that's artful and 
subtle and sympathetic. Yeah, empathetic. I think empathetic. The, yes, yes. Yeah, you yeah. know, to to the the child that's been like had her like innocence destroyed. Yes. Whereas you know, right. Well, I'm not gonna slander Aerosmith, but. <laughs> You'll just wait until um you know who directed that, right? Janie got a gun? Yeah. No, I have no idea. Fincher. Oh no. Okay. Well. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, I, I think ultimately what he's created though, I would argue is one of the most complex female protagonists one of the more complex female protagonists has ever been on film. And I think Cheryl Lee does not get nearly enough credit for the depth that she shows. Yeah, I agree with that. Throughout this. Um, all right. Any final thoughts you have on this list tonight or if I walk with me or no, it was a really good list. I really enjoyed watching all these movies. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and next, well, in two weeks, I guess um, we will, um, be going into 2022 with a bunch of movies that like we i don't think none of them have we talked about before and um it's a time period that we don't often go into a lot of times um as we get deeper into like the 2000s on these year end lists um we don't often get to talk about movies from the 2000s so that that's always interesting as well as kind of seeing things that are from our 20s kind of um and revisiting things so um that's always early it's because huh? you're a bigot. <laughs> Is this all about Kung Fu Hustle? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um. All right. It's because um, it's because you don't like fun. I'll 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 take it. That's fine. No no problem. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. All right. So um, we'll be back in a couple weeks. Um. But in the meantime, everybody, uh, happy holidays. Yep. Um. Be safe. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks. Deuces. Okay.